All right. Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read High Rises by Ben Austin. We are beginning Chapter 15, Old Town, New Town. Kelvin Cannon. When he was young, Kelvin Cannon believed the towers of Cabrini Green were as immutable as mountains. They were as much a part of the natural landscape as the boundless plains of Lake Michigan. Quote, but I got older, end quote, he said, quote, and I got wiser, end quote. He watched as the Ogden Avenue Bridge, his childhood playground, disappeared. The barricaded overpass eventually torn down. He learned for himself the history of Cabrini Green, that the neighborhood had previously been Irish, Swedish, and Italian, that the Cabrini row houses and high-rises were built on top of an existing ghetto that had once seemed permanent until it wasn't. Cannon came to subscribe to a... Cannon came to subscribe to a pragmatism born of fatalism. Change was something the powerful imposed on everyone else. In 2003, Mayor Daley had ended debate over the future of a downtown airport by sending in bulldozers late at night and tearing up the runways. He had Lakeshore Drive moved to create a downtown museum campus. Imagine what he'd do to public housing. Quote, Cabrini was an eyesore for the Gold Coast, end quote, Kenneth said. Quote, the plan to transform us was mandated in the early 70s. It was only a matter of time, inevitable, end quote. The community might be able to save the row houses, he believed. The high rises, no chance. Quote, I was taught it's best to sit at the table with people so we can coexist, end quote, he explained. Quote, all we can do now is negotiate and try to get as much as we can, as we can coming back as public housing units, end quote. Cannon respected Carol Steele. He didn't deny that the lawsuits and all the protests had served a purpose, but Cannon figured that Miss Steele had lost her way. A decade had passed since the millions of federal Hope Six dollars were first earmarked for the rebuilding of Cabrini, and in all that time, little had been done. For the last three of those years, Steele was president of the Cabrini Tenant Council. She tangled with the city and Peter Holston, the developer who won the contract to rebuild parts of Cabrini Green. Quote, Three years wasted, end quote, Cannon said, quote, in the process of tearing down, we were supposed to be rebuilding the mixed income. But Miss Steele couldn't come to an agreement with Holston. Nothing was built. A lot of residents were being displaced, and a lot of those people were never found again, end quote. In 2004, Cannon decided he tried to unseat Steele as tenant council president. He considered himself more than qualified. At 41, he lived at Cabrini Green for all but three and a half years that he'd been incarcerated, and it had been nearly a quarter century since his sole conviction for armed robbery and 15 since he left the Gangster Disciples. He'd apprenticed under Cora Moore when she was tenant president. He'd worked alongside her and Dolores Wilson to self-manage their high-rise. He'd done maintenance and construction. Steele's vice president reported Cannon to a gang crime commission, saying that a Gangster Disciple was trying to take over the multi-million dollar rehab of Cabrini Green. But Cannon let it be known that he turned himself over to God. Given a second chance, he dedicated himself to the community. In some conservative circles, in fact, Cannon was hailed as an exemplar of the redemptive capabilities of self-reliance. He was invited to join the members of the Empowerment Network, a pro-faith policy group that included Pennsylvania Senator Rick Sanatorum and other socially conservative members of Congress. As a former gang member, 
Cannon was presented as living proof that even the intractable problems of the inner city could be overcome through the, quote, resilient power of freedom and free markets and the reliance of its citizens on our deep wellspring of faith in God, end quote. The Empowerment Network's director, David Caparalva, has specialized in resident-directed initiatives at HUD under Jack Kemp. Quote, God bless your achievements, your family, in 1230 North Burling, end quote, he wrote to Cannon. Quote, you are our hero. Cannon wasn't about to run away from his game past either. He wagered that people like Cabrini Green would recall that he commanded the disciples without abusing his authority. Being a GD governor, he felt, proved that he was someone who stuck with whatever he started and rose to positions of leadership. He put on a shirt and tie and a V-neck sweater, donned his leather coat, and started to walk the land at Cabrini Green, going door to door to every apartment, telling people why he should be president. He collected signatures and asked residents for their vote. Cannon liked to canvas alone. He felt people would recognize his fearlessness and determination. He made the rounds of the whites, the reds, and the row houses. When he completed the circuit, he started again. Half of the units were now vacant, but nobody really knew which ones were empty or occupied, who was on lease and could vote and who wasn't. For three months, he tried to reach everyone. Cannon spoke in intermittent burst, his words suddenly rushing out in a torrent as he tried to explain that the election was a referendum on redevelopment. Under Carol Steele, they were missing their only chance to be a part of the evolving area. They had to embrace the change. They had to trust that too many lawyers were already involved in the plan for transformation for it to go wrong. Carol Steele and her backers called Cannon a crony of the CHA and the developers. They pointed out that when Halston opened Northtown Village, a private mixed-income development across from 1230 North Burling, he'd given Cannon the job there as a security guard. Steele said Cannon was at best naive. Hadn't a decade of broken promises proven that the CHA couldn't be trusted? How many times have residents been told they were part of the planning process only to be pushed aside when the city decided to go ahead with its own agenda? Steele wasn't holding up the process. She said time and time again, she was trying to make sure that what occurred was legal and in compliance with its stated aims. Quote, we said, show us the land, show us the money, and show us the housing. But the CHA couldn't produce. That's why it's been a long, drawn-out process, end quote. She wanted proof that those with a, quote, right of return, end quote, could truly return to Cabrini Green, that they would actually be mixed into the new housing. Early in 2004, Cabrini residents filed another lawsuit against the CHA after 400 families were issued eviction notices that would have pushed them out long before the building of any replacement housing. Experience had taught her that the CHA fulfilled its promises to tenants only when the judge ordered it to do so. On the day of the vote, Cannon passed out walkie-talkies to his friends and family to coordinate as they ushered residents to the polling places and watched for improperties. Turnout, as at most public ballots, they liked both candidates, so they picked each of them. In challenge results, in the final count, Cannon received a couple dozen more votes. Still challenged the results, but the CHA approved the tally. She says she lost because the CHA and the city wanted her out. Cannon wasn't so much elected as selected. Cannon credited his victory to a higher power than the Chicago Housing Authority and even Mayor Daley. He said he had God on his side. And then that brings us to a, a changing in the themes of the chapter here. And I think what stands out to me 
and what we just read right there is again the evolution of another one of these one of the character one of the individuals that we've grown with in Cabrini Green and when those again when those opportunities and avenues are presented for people how they're able to take hold of them and so here let's continue forward One of Cannon's first acts as president was to move the tenant council offices north of Division into 1230 North Burley. He combined two units on the first floor of his high-rise to create a space big enough. Then, weeks later, he signed the agreement to finally start work on the new housing that would replace the Cabrini Extension Towers. He put his faith in Peter Holston, who'd been awarded the contract to develop the mixed-income complex. Quote, we are blessed to have him as a partner, end quote, Cannon said. Holston had grown up in the western suburbs, and after an MBA at the University of Chicago took him to the south side, he stumbled into real estate and won business with the city. Public housing, he related, quote, came to encompass my life work, end quote. He said he learned quickly that it wasn't enough to hand public housing families the keys to an apartment and say, quote, live happily ever after, end quote. He believed in a motto of in-your-face management, strict but respectful, quote, I'm sorry, Mrs. Jones. You're being put out because your son set fire to the apartment. Maybe we can get your son in a program somewhere and I can convince management to keep you here. That's the yin and the yang, end quote. Holston would explain, quote, obey the rules or else, end quote. He hired case managers to help tenants search for jobs and stay current on their bills. He kept a social service consultant on site in each of his properties. Quote, I want all the kids in my buildings to go to college. And I want the heads of household to be employed and for the cycle of poverty to be broken, end quote, Holston said. Quote, I know that's not going to happen. What do I settle for short of that? I try to give them the best house that I can. I try to get everyone to be neighborly, end quote. Over the previous decade, a dozen market rate developments with public housing units mixed in had opened on the periphery of Cabrini Green. Private developers completed Private developers competed for the building rights as well as the tax credits and favorable financing. For centrally located Cabrini Green, it didn't take much to lure investors. Residential property sales in the two-block radius around Cabrini Green totaled less than $6 million in 1995, but five years later, at the start of the plan for transformation, annual sales had reached $120 million, and from 2000 to 2005, total sales neared $1 billion. In 1999, when Holston won the rights to develop Northtown Village, he priced the for sale units to sell at a discount of 15% below the area's going rate. 79 of the 261 condos and townhomes were reserved for public housing families, and he thought buyers might balk at the unique arrangement. Part of the pitch made to young professionals was that they would be, quote, social pioneers, end quote, embarking on a new form of urban living. People of different races and classes were going to live alongside one another under the same roof. But being a pioneer also meant acting boldly and getting in ahead of others. It meant staking a claim before prices rose and the land was fully settled. Months ahead of construction on Northtown Village, when a sales trailer first opened at the site, the units went fast. 47 that day, 80 by the end of the week. Cabrini Towers still defined the landscape. 
but buyers trusted that the high rises would soon give way to even higher property values and Northtown Village was pronounced one of the city's hottest real estate markets. Quote, just a stone's throw from the Gold Coast, River North, Old Town and Lincoln Park, Cabrini Green is easily one of the most sought after neighborhoods in all of Chicago. End quote. Gushed a write up from a local real estate firm. Northtown Village townhomes sold for as much as $475,000. A young couple who bought a condo described a buying frenzy. One woman yelling at her husband, quote, just buy whatever's left, end quote. The area that had been Cabrini Green, and before that Little Sicily and Little Hell, some realtors now tried to rebrand as, quote, Newtown, end quote, dropping the Cabrini Green moniker in to their in- interests. Peter Halston named the mixed-income complex that replaced several red Cabrini high-rises along Division Street, quote, Parkside of Old Town, end quote. Among the dignitaries at the groundbreaking for the complex, Halston was joined by the CHA's Terry Peterson, Alderman Walter Burnett, and Kelvin Cannon, his shovel raised, wearing a do-rag beneath his hard hat and a white cashmere top coat, despite the mud. Daly announced that Cabrini Green was now, quote, part of the larger Old Town neighborhood, end quote. Latasha Ricks, one of Annie Ricks' daughters, helped build Parkside's combination of mid-rises and townhomes. Quote, even though I was president and a partner in the development, end quote, Cannon said, quote, I helped build it too. I was out there in the fields. I was out there as a laborer, end quote. During the construction, Holston pre-sold 70% of Parkside's market rate units, purchases putting down 5% of the price. That was in 2006, two years before anyone could move in, and buyers paid half a million to nearly three quarters of a million for the townhomes, with the condos starting at $300,000. Many people snapped up two units, figuring they flip one later as prices continued to climb. Holston planned initially to complete one mid-rise before starting on the others. But with the money from pre-sales and the increasing demand, he began construction on the entire 760-unit complex, all 228 townhomes and several mid-rises. One of the new owners in 2006 was Abu Ansari, whose partner Mark surprised him with the floor plans to their unbuilt Parkside condo. A stage actor from Texas, Ansari had moved to Chicago in the early 90s and he'd followed news of the plan for transformation, wondering whether public housing residents would be forced to leave at the very moment that their neighborhood started to flourish. His own mother had grown up in public housing in San Antonio. And as a black gay man in a relationship with an older white man, he was attuned to the stark divisions of race and class in his new city. How many times had he used the word, quote, gentrifier, end quote, as a slur? And now he might be one of them. And of all places, Cabrini Green. But two years is a long time to get over your misgivings. Prices around Cabrini rose higher still, and Abu and Mark talked about their pre-science for getting in early. And when their Parkside mid-rise actually went up, the design exceeded their expectations. The building was the opposite of the towers it replaced. Squat and broad, it was a multi-sided prism, reigning genially over the corner of Division Street and Sewer Park like a cross-legged Buddha. Its orange-brick facade was adorned with splashes of purple ornamentation and decorative pillars. Every unit had a balcony. Abu and Mark started to embrace the idea of themselves as pioneers in an exciting social experiment. When Abu and Mark finally moved in, it was bliss. Their ninth-floor apartment was roomy and modern, facing out over the new supermarket complex in Lincoln Park beyond. They hosted dinner parties, proud to show off their new home. 
At soirees set up by the building's management, the owners met one another. At soirees, excuse me, that was horrible pronunciation. At soirees set up by the building's management, the owners met one another, the conversation turning invariably to their foresight and collective good fortune. The public housing units had yet to be filled, but the condos were nearly sold out. The owners could watch from their balconies as potential buyers for another mid-rise under construction next door lined up at a sales trailer. This was in the early fall of 2008, a month after Abu and Mark moved into Parkside of Old Town, the global investment bank Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy. For more than a decade, as home prices soared, people had embraced the faith preached by government and business alike, a global prosperity gospel that the housing market could only go up. The plans for transformation was devised amid this real estate bubble, and it was premised on the sale of market rate units at the new mixed income complexes. Without these sales, the public-private developments couldn't fund construction costs or guarantee loans for the large capital projects. Public housing was created in the 1930s because the for-profit real estate market, by its very nature, was unable to provide decent and affordable homes for Americans at the lower rungs of the economic ladder. And 70 years later, the speculative market had again made its limitations plain. People at Cabrini Green weren't thinking about the deregulation of the banking industry or credit default swaps or negative amortization loans or collateralized debt obligations. But the building of replacement units came to a halt at every Chicago public housing development. Construction on the second phase of Parkside of Old Town ceased. With the trucks and the men in fluorescent yellow vests gone, the, the poor foundation sat exposed like a Roman ruin, harking back to an age that had yet to be. Okay, I think one of the things that stands out is, which is something that, you know, which is one of the the specificities of gentrification and is one of the things people talk about in gentrification is that a neighborhood, a people, people are exploited, discriminated against, deal with just the some of the worst parts, the worst aspects of a city when they live in an area that is high in poverty when they live in an area that is quite frankly a disproportionate amount of people of color and so the education suffers the property value suffers the mental the the psychology of the people who live in there suffers and what happens with gentrification is people come in and they profit off of that suffering that has existed because at lower rates they can buy homes because they can cut corners and the people that they that are there have less political power to stop those corners from being cut. And so these people get double exploited because now these people whose lives have been sacrificed for this value property value to get low get none of the benefits from the people who come in and then raise this property value and then put up all of these things here. You know, we've read for the entirety of this book how the only thing that really had ever been in this area in Chicago from the 20th century on was people in high uh, poverty or people that lived in poverty or people that were working class or lower class and whether it was public housing when it was Little Sicily and Little Hell or the high rises that came to be with Cabrini Green. And we see now that once these things have been destroyed, there was not any type of any type of true effort made to try to recompensate or to try to 
give reparations to the people whose lives had suffered from living in this neglected area. Instead, people were just coming in and trying to find out how they can make money, trying to find out how they can make this area more lucrative. And so we just see again, and I've said this for the last couple of episodes, how the people who are the most vulnerable in our society, their lives swing at such a pendulum based on what the politics of the time are. And because they have so little power to be able to grasp for self-determination, they are usually the they are usually the uh, the collateral damage to somebody else trying to take their own self-determination in their hands. The Parkside buyers who hadn't finalized their purchases simply walked away, giving up their 5% deposits. Peter Holston lost half of his pre-sales. His market rate partner on the project, a national developer with properties across the western states, filed for bankruptcy. Holston listed Parkside Apartments as half their peak price with only a 3% down payment required. With the help of the MacArthur Foundation, the city created an incentive program called, quote, find your place in Chicago, end quote, paying $10,000 and for a limited time only $15,000 to anyone who purchased a unit in a mixed income development. It offered grants to buyers to covering closing costs. When Holston couldn't pay back a $32 million Parkside construction loan to J.P. Morgan Chase, he and the bank discussed taking the sold units to auction, allowing Chase to write off the remainder of the loan as a loss. For the plan for transformation in Mayor Daly, that was unacceptable. Cabrini Green was too notorious to fail. The city bailed Holston out. He was due to receive a public subsidy of several million dollars only after a certain number of Parkside units were sold. Although the collapse of the housing market left him nowhere near that threshold, the city gave him the money, allowing Chase to renegotiate his loan. A couple of months later, the city financed about half of the $42 million cost to build another eight-story Parkside building on the corner of Oak and Larrabee that would include 39 units of public housing. Most of the owners in Abu and Mark's buildings were underwater, only more on their condos than they were worth. Those who bought multiple units, hoping to flip them, were stuck with two apartments they couldn't sell. Neighbors lost their homes to foreclosure. Parkside buyers have been celebrated as urban pioneers and risk takers. Now they felt like suckers. Owning was supposed to mean you had the right to exercise choices. Buy, sell, move, take out a home equity loan. You wanted to make money to see a return on your investment. That's what they imagined at the American, as the American way. Never mind that the federal government devoted three times as much each year to mortgage interest deductions and other homeowner subsidies, essentially public housing for homeowners, than to the entire annual budget of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. But now the housing market have failed them as well. The, rem- the remaining Cabrini Green high-rises across the street no longer were so easy to ignore. They loomed ominously like giant tombstones. That was when the public housing families began to move in. Housing officials had talked passionately about the prospect of, quote, productive neighboring, end quote, in the mixed income developments. The families in public housing networking with and learning from their middle and upper class neighbors, working adults modeling a professional lifestyle for lower income youth. Even in the best of times. It seemed starry-eyed to imagine that interactions would happen in these buildings across race and class and age that rarely occurred elsewhere in the city. But amid the worst financial crisis in 80 years, the divisions became starker. 
Parkside included on the same floors not only people of different races and classes, but also the conflicting American ideologies of self-sufficiency and social obligation, of home ownership and public assistance. Stuck with their bum mortgages, though, the owners came to resent the people who were, quote, living for free, end quote, beside them, beside them in nearly identical apartments. Obsessing over the number of units that sold and at what reduced price, they complained that public housing families were, quote, taking over. At their meetings, the condo owners talked endlessly about, quote, situations, end quote, in the building that were depressing their property values. They'd seen renters come downstairs to get mail in their pajamas. That wouldn't look attractive to a potential buyer. They proposed a rule prohibiting pajamas in public spaces. They fretted over the congregating of public housing families in the lobbies. They had to be frank. A large gathering of young black people in the entranceway looked more like the old Cabrini Green than a new one. Someone suggested removing furniture from the lobbies. Someone else seconded a rule restricting the size of gatherings inside apartments to keep noise levels down. They complained about public housing residents who left the gates to their townhomes open. It was ugly and a hazard for anyone walking a dog. One woman suggested a ban on garden gnomes. She was afraid no one would buy a place after seeing a gnome. Ansari was especially sensitive to the rising tensions. There were other black condo owners, but the fault lines formed mostly around race. He tried to befriend the older woman who lived next door to them, a former Cabrini resident. Miss Smith told him how much she loved her Parkside apartment and spoke proudly of her son who was attending college. She also paid her television at an unbearably high played her television at an unbearably high volume, and music with a heavy bass thudded while Boo and Mark tried to sleep. When one of them knocked to mention the noise, Miss Smith apologized and promised to keep it down. But in no time, the music again thumped and the television again blared, and the requests and promises were repeated with increasingly less politeness on both sides. To make matters worse, both Abu and Mark were laid off in the downturn. Ansari was able to find part-time work, but Mark remained at home. Every day, at the same hours, he soon discovered Miss Smith's adult children visited, often with their own children in tow, and within minutes the family members were screaming at each other. Mark could set his clock by it. He tried to ignore the yelling, the music, the TV, but he couldn't even think. When he went over to complain, Miss Smith sometimes bemoaned the sorry state of her life, telling Mark that she had nothing and he had everything. Mark couldn't believe it. He was 50 and out of work with a new mortgage to pay. By then, he'd been unemployed for more than a year, and he worried if he'd ever be hired again. On a night when Mark phoned several times to complain about the racket, one of Miss Smith's sons threatened him, calling him a, a slur, a, the slur for a gay man. Uh, uh, Mark had the son banned from the building. The son who'd been away at college returned. Quote, please, please, end quote, he begged of Ansari. Quote, I'm trying to keep my family together, end quote. Eventually, though, the manager of the building stepped in, moving Miss Smith to a different Halston de development. Mark was overjoyed to see them gone. Ansari's feelings were more mixed. Quote, I felt relief, but also a deep sadness, end quote, he'd say. Quote, my biggest nightmare came true, end quote. As a black homeowner, he forced out a returning Cabrini Green resident. The Smiths certainly, Smith certainly weren't uplifted by their brief time in Parkside of Old Town. The economy began gradually to improve. Mark found a full-time job. Slowly, the empty Parkside condo sold. You couldn't beat the 
they, you couldn't beat the location at the crossroads of major boulevards and bus and train routes right by the loop in the burgeoning tech sector forming nearby in River North. The hulking Montgomery Ward warehouse hugging the river just a couple of blocks away had been remade with the use of city subsidies and now included high-end condos, corporate headquarters, restaurants, a spa, and a yacht club with boat slips onto the water. Ground was broken on another park side of Old Town Mid-Rise, as well as on several other private residential buildings in the immediate vicinity. Demolition of the remaining Cabrini Green high-rises proceeded. The CHA renter who moved into Miss Smith's apartment was a widowed grandfather who kept to himself. Every once in a while, Abu and Mark could hear, as if at a distance, the tinkling of contemporary jazz. They worry mostly that they were too loud for him. And that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter, Old Town, New Town. And what stands out to me here is just the... The well, the the 2008 2009 housing market decline stands out here. How many everyday people were vulnerable to it? One of the things that we see is that uh, Mark and Abu were considerably more well off than the people who were in the public housing in the areas in the neighborhood that they moved into who were there before. But once the the downfall of the 2008 2009 housing market happened, uh, their lives too were completely altered and completely shifted. And we see the plans that the city had made were completely altered and completely shifted. But we see the uh, the lengths that they went to to try to make sure that what they were doing in that area still succeeded by bailing out the, the man who was, uh, I don't know what the proper term is for, uh, but the man who was leading the charge on uh, building the high rises, who had got the contract to not, building the high rises but building the homes that would go in the area that the high rises were the man who had the contract he was bailed out by the city once he basically went into foreclosure to the bank and i think one of the other things that stands out about this specific book is all the different time periods that we have crossed in here and all the different specific social issues that have happened through that time period we've went through heroin epidemic we've went through the crack epidemic we've went through uh, the rise in street gangs. Uh, we've went through Reagan era Reaganomics. We've went through Bill Clinton's uh, police police bill that he passed, the rise of mass incarceration, and we've now arrived in the the 2000, the 21st century, in the first t- decade of the 2000s, and we're dealing, we're speaking about the the housing market crash and how that affected people as well, and so. And that's something I still have to be more well-versed on myself. So uh, I would encourage people to listen to previous episodes of Rifle Reading Daily if you haven't before. And if by the time you get to this, there are future episodes of Rifle Reading Daily out, I would encourage you to listen to those as well. I want to thank everybody for taking the time to listen to this. Remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to begin and further on their journey in the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. All right, we'll talk to you tomorrow.